Hello, it's Mick. Just before we get into today's episode, I want to introduce you to our Patreon. If you don't know what Patreon is, it's a subscription service where you can chuck us a couple of quid every month if you like what we're doing, and that helps support the podcast, pay for licenses and pay for new equipment to make the show better and all that sort of stuff. So head over to patreon.com forward slash HM4AS, the four being the number four. And if you can give us some money, that would be really, really great. Uh, I know times are hard, so if you haven't got any money and you're still enjoying it, then please share it, tell your friends, put stuff up on your Instagram stories, retweeting, all that sort of stuff. Uh, it's really great, and thanks thanks for listening. There are a couple of tiers on the Patreon. So there's the first tier, which is just general support, and that gives us £3 a month, which works out at 75 pence per episode. Uh, then there's a middle tier, which is £5 a month, uh, and that gives you everything in the tier below, and you also get discount on merch. And Lucy's going to draw you a Patreon-exclusive digital print that you'll get when you sign up. And then there is a top tier, which is £10 a month. And I know that sounds like a lot of money, but it really, really, really will help us uh, keep the podcast going. And with that one, you get everything in the two tiers below it. Plus, you'll also get a physical print every two months and a free T-shirt when the merchandise that Lucy's making comes. So it's all very exciting. Thank you very much for listening and hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, it's Mick and Lucy from the popular tattoo-based podcast, How Much for a Sleeve. And we'd like to give a few moments over to our new sponsor, DSM Tattoo Machines. Lucy, tell us a bit about them. Well, Mick, DSM Tattoo Machines make exceptional coils and now a new rotary. Tattoo machines, not guns. You can check them out at dsmtattoo.co.uk and don't forget you get 10% off with discount code SLEEVE10. They also make a range of needles. You can find them at lockdownneedle.co.uk. I think they're very nice. Hello and welcome to How Much for a Sleeve, a podcast about tattooing hosted by an actual tattooist and an actual knob, Mick. How are you? Well, I'm well. How are you? Good. Yeah, I'm all right. I've, um, in boring news, I bought a house and we got our keys today. So that's in boring news that's yeah. mega well, bo- news boring for everyone else who doesn't know me it's like shut up about your house you prick but oh, it's the first time you've mentioned it though isn't it but there is a funny story yeah so we went in there to, got the keys today and just went in and like, had a little dance and went woo and then me- <laughs> measured some bits and stuff but in in one of the upstairs bedrooms like there's a big red button on the wall so because okay. because i'm a man you pressed I, it fucking pressed it and an alarm went off so <laughs> It was a, like a proper la- a proper house. The whole al- house alarm went off, and there was a thing. <laughs> there was a thing on the wall uh, downstairs, like with buttons to press to put the code in. But obviously, they don't just leave that information lying around. <laughs> so it was going mad. So we rang the estate agents. And we're like, "There's an alarm going off. Can you can you turn it off?" They're like, "Oh, we haven't got any notes in our system. Let me ring the the people you bought it off." <laughs> so they rang them. Was it they really s- loud? Fucking loud! Like. <laughs> Like deafening, like shut your eyes loud. It was horrible. And the neighbours were like, what the fuck's going on? So, um, sorry, just no Dennis. I know the alarm's going off, it's mad, isn't it? Yeah, we're trying to fucking turn it off. We can't. We can't, and it's stressful. 
Danny was yelling at me. It was all, I yeah. bet. Why the fucking pressure? You're such a blowing load. You fucking. And I was like, I was going. Oh, let's try and find out what what number to call. She's like, you're shit in a crisis as well. She goes because I was just fucking panicking, <laughs> just hanging out the window and saying sorry to people. <laughs> then, then the um, so the, the, yeah, the the estate agent rang the people we bought it off. They said, oh yeah, that's always been there, but we've just never used it. I was like, mm-hmm, yeah, you just had a fucking alarm that works in your house for four years with dogs in the house that's never set it off. Okay, great. You fucking anyway. So I can't blame them. It's my fault. Do you think if you'd have paid full asking price, they would have told you the code? Uh, no, because I think uh, um, I just shouldn't press big red buttons. They're, they're yeah. getting, the big red buttons are there for, for emergencies only, not just ooh, ooh. <laughs> so fortunately, <laughs> so we had a, we, we rang up, and the geezer was going to charge us a lot of money, quite rightly so, to come out and like kill it. I don't know how, but like knock it off the wall or completely disconnect it but fortunately it timed out after 20 minutes and that's a, a thing that they have to have so they don't just go on forever and annoy a whole street so i went off up but i'm, I'm just convinced it's just going to go off again at any at any point and the neighbors already brand new neighbors already hate us and they're gonna hate, <laughs> us, hate us more so that yeah that's been that's been my day so two things we've learned don't press the big red button yeah. Secondly, if you want to burgle a house and the alarm goes off, just wait 20 minutes and it'll be okay. Yeah, set the alarm off, then run away. No one turns yeah. up, 20 minutes later, you go back in. Yeah. Safe. Easy. What's your address? <laughs> um, t- <laughs> also, the bloke said, try the factory setting, like the classic one, which is 01234 or something like that. And apparently that that turns it off. Does it fuck? No, no, it didn't. But I was like, why, why have you put that one as the factory setting? Pick something mad. Yeah. <laughs> just go in the house and just, you you know, the alarm could go off. You, your shoulder could slide across the buttons. Oh, it's turned off. That's great. <laughs> anyway. So that was a good start to house ownership. Yeah. And so probably going to have to go and say sorry to the neighbours, but we're not moving in for a bit because we've got to get some new carpets. So hopefully they'll have all forgotten and don't hate us. And when are you going to move in? In a bit when the carpets are done. <laughs> we've got a, We've got a month at the place we're renting now, so. Should. Where are you going to put your sex dungeon? Well, there's a there's a um, basement which already has quite a lot of like sex swings and things like that wow. in already. So the reason we bought it. This reminds me. I, I listened to another podcast, Real Life Ghost Stories. Yes. And I don't know why, because we've already established that I don't like scary things. Mm-hmm. But when I was scrolling through, um, I was looking for an episode, and then I saw one about haunted paintings. And I was yeah. listening to it in the car on the way home. And um, it was it was the anguished man and the crying boy, two haunted paintings. And the first one they started talking about was the crying boy, and it's like this mass-produced print in the seventies. In oh, it's just the one where all the houses, all the houses burned down. down. Yeah, yeah, all the houses burned down. And I was sitting in my car driving, thinking, hmm, a mass-produced print of a crying child. I have one of those sitting you know- directly above me right now. Do you but, know what what's interesting about that is that also all of those houses that burnt down that had that painting in it also had sinks. They had sinks in there. <laughs> and and it's, it's the sinks. Is, <laughs> the, no yeah. one no one's talking about the sinks burning it down, are they? Yeah. It's all the paintings. It was the Sun newspaper. They 
they sort of encouraged this mass hysteria to the extent that they got they said to everyone right we're gonna have a big bonfire and they said the funny thing with all these houses that burn down is the painting doesn't burn down the painting doesn't burn but what we'll do oh. is we'll have a big bonfire to burn them because what it was it just turned out that these paintings had like a fire retardant um coating on them right. that's why they went burning it wasn't it wasn't but, like some demon no. blessing these paintings <laughs> but the whole journey home i was like fuck what should i do should i just huss it out the window should i give it to someone else i don't like or should i try and burn it myself put it in the bin and i came <laughs> in i was like oh it's a different crime boy or gift it so you know, gift it to me as a here you go set the alarm happy. off with that happy house mate <laughs> <laughs> that'll stop your alarm burn yeah. it down just set fire yeah. to the alarm yeah <laughs> um and the other one was about the anguish man but it's that's terrifying and there was a recording on there so this anguish man painting it's just funnily enough by the guy someone i follow a tattooist it's his dad who owns it so i sort of knew of it anyway but his dad was record there was loads of strange things happening and he recorded it he just put it in a room and press record and they played the clip of some strange noises and um, it honestly makes McGoggin sound like a real babe. Mm-hmm. It was awful. So, what, what's the podcast called again? Real life ghost stories. So go and check that out. Yeah, yeah, do that. It it will upset you. I might listen. I'm into all that shit. I love listening to it. I know it's not real, but I do enjoy it. It's like why I like horror films. I do not enjoy being scared. And, oh, I love it. But I do like a ghost story. So. Um, shall we talk about our guest today yes oh one other thing another th- before we talk about the guest okay i tattooed one of our patrons earlier in the week yes Lil you Rose. Did. she's a sweetheart she baked us a cake and then she gave me the best tattoos ever to do mrs doubtfire yeah i saw that fuego amy winehouse and um uncle fester get in yeah so thanks rose for being thank a babe. you thank you rose thank you for supporting the podcast you're yeah. the bollocks um does having people like that that when they come in they bring you a cake and they support your endeavors outside of just putting ink on their skin does that make up for the twats that piss you off like tenfold 10 million percent like yeah. It just be makes, like Rose, everyone. I, would, I do it. Yeah, be like Rose. <laughs> she is the dream customer, honestly. She's amazing. And now she's so lush that I was like, you're going to be my friend now. <laughs> and that's what happened. <laughs> thank you, Rose. Thank you, um, Anna Gray. And thank you, Danny, for supporting us. And if you want to join our Patreon, get some bonus stuff, go to patreon.com forward slash HM4AS and yeah sign up it is a couple of quid uh three quid's the lowest one which works out at 75p per episode which is a nice amount to pay for all of the stuff it's nice and we had lou hopper interviewing me which was weird so that's our first patron episode is lou interviewing lou and it's nice and that is out and you can check that out as soon as you sign up you'll be able to access that and of course all the new stuff that's coming out as well Yes. Kate, Shanghai yes. Kate. Isn't she? Oh, honestly, that is like one of my top life moments, I think, chatting to her. Yeah. Another one where just story after story after story where your mouth just gets slightly more open every time yeah. another story comes. You're like, whoa, that's amazing. Whoa, that's amazing. Yeah. Bless her. And she was super ill as well yeah. when we spoke to her. I felt so bad. 
Yeah, we actually we talk about it at the start. So b- because we we tried to get as many of these in before everyone went back to work, um, it was actually the time where she's in. I can't remember where she is in Texas. Austin. Austin. Yeah. But it that was the time when Austin was, when the whole of Texas was frozen over, and they were yeah they looked like sounded like they were struggling a bit. Yeah, it was brutal. They had like super bad freeze. And luckily, she says in, in the episode that they got a, a wood burning stove and they were able to use that for warmth and food. Mm. And like, that's mad, it's mad, isn't, isn't it? it? That? Especially in, in Texas as well. <laughs> yeah. But bless her, when she first came on Zoom call, she'd had like this ginger shot, like vitamin yeah. drink. Yeah. And uh, she was, yeah, super poorly with a cold, bless her. But we so appreciate her determination to come on the show. Absolutely. And uh, those... she liked the name, didn't she? Yeah, she <laughs> sure. said she she said she was gonna she was gonna just ignore it, but then she thought the name was good, so she was gonna come and tell us off for saying that yeah. and then realised it was something else. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so you're welcome. Um <laughs> But there's there's loads of there's loads of stories of her her time uh with Charlie Cartwright and yeah, Sailor Jerry, Sailor Ed Jerry Hardy. and Ed Hardy, all of, all of these names that everyone knows, and you know how how she was like this sort of thing holding the whole thing together with everyone else falling yeah. out with each other, and just just yeah. really cool, really cool stories, and just like I said earlier, just such an interesting person, just story after story after story, and all the cool stuff she yeah. showed us as well, which at some point this week will go up on the the YouTube channel. Yeah. And as a female tattooist, I'm so aware that she really paved the way for mm. other females. Like, yeah. she was so determined and um, she wanted to do it and she did it. And here she is still doing it. Amazing. So, yeah, enjoy. I really enjoyed listening back. I enjoyed talking to her and um, it's a really great one. Yeah. And hopefully because you've got family over there, have you not? Yeah, so Grant and I are supposed to, we were supposed to go last April and um, to go out there. Yeah. My niece lives in Dallas, so we're trying to trying to rebook. So hopefully, I'll get to go over and see her, and ideally get tattooed. That'd be last. Yeah, but yeah, hope to see her at some point, whether it's here or there. Cool. Shall we get her on? Yes. Excellent. Let's... This is episode twelve of How Much for a Sleeve with Shanghai Kate. Hey, this is Bob Tyrell. And you're listening to How Much for a Sleeve. We are so honoured to have the godmother of American tattooing, Shanghai Kate Helenbrand. Thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for asking and thank you for the time. Oh, thank, thank you, you for, for the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so how is, the, how is the cold front in Texas? How are you coping with that? Well, it's deadly, actually. People are dying, uh, you know, I mean, freezing to death in their own beds. Uh, water pipes all over the city are broken. Our hot tub kind of exploded, so wow. I could use it today, but um, we had to order parts for it. Um, we have a lot of pipes on our land. We have 30 acres of land out here, so <clears throat> we have a lot of above-ground trailers and a, lo- a lot of water pipes, and they all froze and split. And uh, it was just, it was hell. It was really hell. Uh, we, I'm a survivor and I've, um, I've camped a lot in the winter times in Utah. I loved it. Wow. <laughs> but, and that was my choice. This was, 
miserable, really miserable. And there was no way to warm anything up. Um, we tried. My husband got wood from the, you know, the forest that we have in the back, uh, 30 acres of land. And we have a wood burning stove that we bought four years ago. And I was thinking, well, that was a big investment, you know, but um, it really came in handy. We could use it as a cook stove, too. So I was making burritos and, you know, we were trying to play like it was a camping trip. But mm. it just after like a week of it, you know, it's like, OK, this is enough. Yeah. So the roads were too slippery to even drive on to go anywhere. <clears throat> so it was the, the, the roads aren't or the infrastructure is not there because you're not used to these conditions, are you? Like pit tires and things like that, I guess, not yeah. <laughs> used to driving on. Well, it was, it was, yeah, it laid down a whole layer of ice and then yeah. snow went on top of the ice and then more ice on top of that. And then Texans don't know how to drive in weather like this. And so there were like 500 accidents in the first hour. Um, wow. You know, it was, it was horrible. So... Uh, and our politicians are idiots because they took us off of the national grid, which yeah. means that we weren't hooked up to any other states that had power because they tried to get the cheapest power here. And so they went to the bottom feeders, you know, the, the cheapest uh, providers for money. So I think they should be sued and tried for murder is what I think they, they should happen. But, you know, it's like Flint, Michigan here in the United States where they with couldn't the even drink water. Yeah. Um, you know, or bathe or anything for um, years. And it's only uh, finally getting straightened out. Uh, my brother used to live in Dallas and I'm uh -huh. Scottish. And so he also is Scottish. So he's used to driving in bad weather. The, the weather there is that we get a lot of snow. So when yeah. he first moved out to Dallas and they'd have like, they had a couple of big freezes and he's like, oh, this is fine. I know what I'm doing. And he's pretty like competent driving and everyone. And he's, he's just said that it's everyone else he has to watch out for because no one yeah. else knows what to do. Yeah, they don't. Uh, and a lot of them are illegals here, you know, so they're driving cars that aren't inspected. Mm. And so, you know, the brakes give out or, you know, they don't know how to drive with brakes. Yeah, it was, we didn't go anywhere. We just stayed here. I had an offer to go stay at the Fairmont Hotel. Um, wow. A friend of mine's, you know, who, who loves me, takes good care of me, Kristen Brooks in Baltimore. Um, she uh, she runs a tattoo shop up there too, um, Westminster Tattoo. <clears throat> and she comes down here quite often. And we go to the pool and we have, <clears throat> you know, we have a good time. And she was like, I'll just pay for you to go to the Fairmont. But you know, I, I can't take advantage of her like that. You know, that's I would be guilty the whole time. So I just stayed in bed with my husband and we tried to tough it out. Oh, that was so kind of her to offer, though. That's so thoughtful. She is a very kind woman. She's a great woman. You'll Aww. meet her. Maybe. She wants to travel with me. I've been to I've been to England. I've I worked in Deal, um, which is in Kent County next yeah. to Dover mm -hmm. with uh, Painless Jeff. Baker, oh. and he was uh, alive, and uh, and I was a good friend with Terry Wigley <clears throat> from Scotland, and uh, they were very good to me in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, so I love England. I don't like curry brats, you know, the curry, whatever that calls. Oh, like the bratwurst, curry. like German, yeah. German currywurst, is it? Yeah. Oh, I, I couldn't do that, but everything else, fish and chips and all of your food 
you know, has interesting names, first of all, and then the pub <laughs> life is really fun. So you go get a spotted dick or toad in the hole or, you know, yeah. and it's, it was great. I had a great time there. Have you got any plans to come back when the travel bans lifted? Oh, yes. Yeah, we're going to I'm writing my book. I'm finally getting around to writing my book, my uh, my life history, as well as um, my history of the people that I've known in tattooing from Terry Wrigley and Jeff all the way down to, you know, Ed Hardy and Jack Rudy and Zeke Owen and Paul Rogers. All these people have been very good friends to me all of my life. They've embraced me for some reason. I don't know why, but um, they've just been very giving and uh, very helpful all the way through my career and so um i have stacks of letters and photographs and so one of the books is going to be called uh, the time of titans and it's going to be involved with you know my telling those stories and then i have my life story which is pretty pretty incredible and then also um yeah, I have I, I have a book that I want to write called From Voodoo to Vogue, which is the history of women in tattooing. Because wow. you know, people think this is a man's art. This is not a man's art. This is a woman's art. Histo- historically from uh, you know uh, Stone Age, you know, when women were the shamans and they would tattoo other women. The men in these primitive cultures never got tattoos. They didn't get tattoos. They got painted, they had feathers in their hair, and they ran off and, you know, attacked another village so that they could expand their power and, you know, their land holdings and so forth. So it was never man's art until uh, Samuel O'Reilly in the 1890s invented the American tattoo artist uh, machine. Other people in India, uh, I mean, in England, I'm sorry, people in England also have a real rich history of invention in tattooing colors and you know um the machinery and everything and so that's never really spoke spoken of everybody thinks it's american as an art but globally historically it goes back before um you know human communities really um in little villages and so forth and the women were tattoo artists they're the they're the um, designers of their culture they do all the work and uh and so they um, they were the ones to tattoo other women because when young women in these uh, Stone Age cultures menstruate, you know, um, you can't tell if she's fertile or not. Um, you know, little girls running around naked swimming in the rivers with the boys, you know, that was all fine and dandy before they all hit puberty. Um, the boys were taken into the woods and circumcised in mass at the age of 13, 14 years old with, you know, rusty, you know, sharp clamshells or something. Oh. Yeah, it was horrible. Some of them didn't make it, you know, but the women got in, went into a hut and they went, they had their first menstrual period. They were taken into a hut and they were tattooed around their mouths, their wow. mouths and lips. So that when they came out after being taught how to take care of children, how to cook the food, how to how to build a tent, how to skin, skin the animals, all the other stuff that makes life, you know, in a community work. Um, they would come out with these tattoos around their faces and um, <clears throat> people could look at them then and say, oh, she can have a baby. So then she's really important because she can have a baby. She can be sold. She can be traded for cows. 
you know, whatever <laughs> they did back in those days. And, uh, and the, the men didn't tattoo the women. They're terrified of menstrual blood, you know. So fundamental men are terrified of it. So women who are menstruating can't eat with men. They can't talk with men. They're hidden off until they're, you know, they're course is finished and then uh, and then they go back to work for the village but um yeah so the women were tattooing the women and they were wow. the that would and be such an interesting book to read yeah. well it's from you know from all the other books about women tribal women tribal women in tattooing and so forth i have all of them and this is you know, nobody talks about it because I guess it's uncomfortable, but it's the truth. You know, the women were the tattoo artists of their culture. And the thing about tattooing, too, I wanted to say is that uh, it doesn't leave behind any permanent record. When you get a tattoo and then you die, it, the tattoo either is burned with you or it goes into the ground. And so there's no real um chronological line of tattooing and and what happened you know prior to you being burned or buried and so uh excuse me so all we have is anecdotal information about tattooing you know we only have um for example the little venus figure that's got big breath big butts there's there's about um the kim kardashian uh, body's type um, they, uh, there are a hundred of them found ar around the world and over half of them are carrying tattoos. So that wow. is the most, that is the most um, vivid information that we have historically that we can point to, to say this started at that time. The other most um, telling archeological fact was that um, in a ritual cave, a cave used for ritual purposes. In France, they found reindeer horn fragments that had been embedded to the skin, to the depth of tattooing with human DNA and carbon. So they surmised that at this site that was used for holy purposes, they were tattooing there. And so they've carbon dated those reindeer horn fragments to 33,000 years before Christ. So it's, you know, it's an ancient art and it's global and nobody knows anything about it these days. You know, the health departments, they think they know what's going on. They don't know what's going on. None of them have any education, um, you know, biology or human biology or chemistry or medical purposes. I mean, it, some of them do, I guess. I shouldn't say none of them, but some of them do. But um, not a, a tattoo artists, if they're educated, they know a lot more about all those things than, you know, officials who are getting paid. Great yeah, we were saying, I don't know who we, was we were talking to about, but so in the UK, the each local authority, so each council for the town will come in and register the premises. Right. But it varies depending on the town. So in one town, it will be a registered nurse that will come in or another town, it will just be like a health and safety inspector. And the right. guy that came into our shop to register me, um, he was just clueless, you know, like I was talking to him right. about contact times of disinfectant and so on. And, and I remember he said when he registered my partner, actually, 
Grant was like showing him the tattoo machine and he was the guy said oh is that one is that what that is is that a tattoo machine is it and he was just clueless he had no idea it was just ticking a box yeah I've had tattoo inspectors come in and look in my microwave after <laughs> good lunch and say oh my god your autoclave is filthy you know <laughs> put your gloves on and leave you know here's a pair of gloves now, now please leave um, I've educated more health department officials in my time in cities all over the United mm. States than, um, than have any, ever had a good discussion with any of them. They don't know. They just are doing it for a job. Yeah, that's yeah. it. So when did tattooing sort of come onto your radar? Well, <clears throat> I was thinking about that. You know, I'm, I'm very lucky uh, when I was writing my book last night um, about my core family you know my nuclear family which is not a pretty it's not a pretty tale but my stepfather was a carpenter construction guy so he he raised me to learn how to use tools so I knew how to use saws and hammers and nails and I was fascinated with all of it and I was an eager student and um, and I think the first time I ever saw a tattoo was when my uncle, who was a long distance truck driver, came for coffee sometimes. And he had two images on his forearms. And I thought, oh, my God, they're, you know, these are signs that he traveled. You know, these are symbols that he's been out in the world somewhere. And so I was fascinated by that. And then um, when I met Michael Malone in New York City and we were next door neighbors, excuse me, <clears throat> When I met Michael Malone, um, he wanted to take pictures of plants growing in New York City. And then one day in his viewfinder on his camera, he saw Tom DeVito's leg. <clears throat> this would be probably in um, like 68. And so um, Michael and I went on a, on a search in New York City for tattooing, for tattoo artists on the East Coast and for little shops. Of course, it was illegal then, so it was really hard to find anything. And so we had to uh, dig and, and then we would photograph and then we would get their stories and then we'd find another person to go talk to and we'd do that. And we documented tattooing in a way that had never been done before on the East Coast. And that's how we photographed everything and then one day I was working for the Museum of American Folk Art as a graphic designer. And um, I said, oh, I, I see that in your in a few years, you're going to do a show about tattooing. And they said, yes. And I said, what are you going to do? And they said, we're just going to um, use an old book by C.H. a sailor. And I said, well, we've been discovering all these living, breathing people who are, you know, making this art happen in their own kitchens. And uh, so we took the slides in and immediately we had a contemporary section of that show, which um, has been documented in a magazine. And, um, and so I didn't even, I wasn't ever going to tattoo. I said, no, this is man's work. I don't know anything about it. I don't want to be Yoko Ono that comes in and breaks up the Beatles. I'm not going to do anything like that. So <clears throat> Michael started tattooing before I did. And uh, I was his first victim, I would say. <laughs> and uh, because it was the most painful tattoo I've ever received in my life. 
and then <laughs> we started making flash and uh and then we kept up uh taking tom devita to huck spaulding's house for tom to continue to get tattooing that beautiful back piece that he had and so i became really good friends with tom and then very good friends with huck spaulding and his wife josie and uh so we were up there every other week and uh, i bought a Volkswagen passenger van so we could do it more comfortably and uh, <clears throat> and then uh, Michael got tattoo equipment and so I was his first client and then one day and so then Michael wanted to open a tattoo shop and I said okay well we'll you know tear down one of the walls in the apartment and so we did and then it was because it was illegal you couldn't put a sign that says tattooing you couldn't advertise in the yellow pages or in the newspaper so he would just go out on the street and take our little business card that said after 6 p.m on it and he'd hand, hand them out to people who had tattoos and then at 6 p.m we'd just sit and wait and see if anybody showed up and uh, one day he made a hundred dollars and he said, this is it. And so we were tattoo artists from that point on. And then one of his clients brought a young man named Tom King to me to get, you know, to get, well, he was getting tattooed. And Tom really wanted to get a tattoo by me because women were not, they were not known in this business. They were not for this career or craft or whatever you want to call it. They, um, there were no, you know, it was a novelty above and beyond everything else and um so i agreed to do a little tattoo on him and it came back really good really well and i by that time had been watching tattoos going on for a couple of years so i had the vocabulary in my hands and um and so uh the tattoo was successful so the second tattoo he wanted was a peacock on his chest that ran about this you know it was like eight inches wow. tall and i said okay i can do that you know, because <laughs> <so ballsy>. sure. <laughs> I can do that. Sure. What about a back seat, a back piece? What about a sleeve? You know. So anyway, <laughs> uh, I love the name of your um, what you're reaching out to me with. Uh, how much? Is how a much sleeve? for a sleeve? I didn't. I almost wasn't going to answer you. I was going to say, you know, you know, I was going to scold you and then do uh, <laughs> most clients. But um, anyway. Um, I did this giant peacock and he loved it and I loved it. I, I started tattooing at 8.30 in the morning and I didn't look up again until 1.30 in the afternoon. And uh -huh. I said, whatever this art is, this is the art for me because I was a creator, I was a writer and, a, and an illustrator and graphic designer and all that kind of stuff. But nothing ever took me away from time and space the way tattooing did. And... Um, and so that was it. I was I was a tattoo artist after that. I had a lot of education prior to that. Two years going to all these different shops and hanging out with all these different guys, and you know, so I wasn't uh, new. I I did know what I was doing, but uh, I had never picked up a machine before. So how did you end up going to um, Sailor Jerry's shop and getting to well, know him? <clears throat> well, that's that's uh, yes. Uh, you know, you couldn't even meet Sailor Jerry. He was in Hawaii and he, you know, it was very difficult in those days to fly over there. And it was expensive once you got there. Um, he was really good friends with Ed Hardy and C. Cohen. And I knew Ed really well. Ed has been the constant um, 
supporter of mine through my whole career. And, uh, and so when we, when we did this show at the Museum of American Folk Art, Jerry always thought that his art was important, it, that it wasn't just gutter art, you know, which is what everybody thought tattooing was. And so um, because we mounted his work on the walls as a fine artist, he felt indebted to us. So he asked us to come to what is really sometimes called the first tattoo convention that ever happened in Hawaii in 1971. And it was with um, Kazuo Ogori from Japan and Des Conley, who was Jerry's machine builder, his shop girl, Mickey, um, and then Ed, Michael, and I, and then Jerry, I think that makes up the seven. And so we just hung out at his house. He, he asked us to come and it was a party, tattoo party at Sailor Jerry's house. Who's not going to wow. go, you know? <laughs> so we, uh, we flew over and uh, we had a great time. I documented most of what was going on then. And um, he was, he was uh, everything and more than you could ever think that he would be. He was so charming and so smart and so you know he's he's the most intelligent person i ever met in tattooing his he wrote the his this i, I published a couple of books um the next one is going to be his health quiz of who can you know pass these medical questions and get a license i mean he was he was amazing and uh and so then there's something happened there on the fifth day, um, I was kidnapped by Ed Hardy and taken up to the poly and he confessed undying love for me and asked, and you know, and he told me that he was leaving his wife and son and he wanted me to leave Michael and go off to Japan because he had cooked up this deal with Kazuo to um, come to Japan and tattoo. And that's what Ed had always wanted. And so he had made that arrangement while he was getting his back tattooed by Kazuo. And, um, and so I went back to the house and I told Michael he would not believe what I was going to tell him because he had, Ed had offered Michael half of business in San Diego. And we didn't know anything about what was going on, you know, as far as tattooing is concerned. It was our, Ed was, a you know, our mentor in all of this. And, uh, and I told him that uh, Ed had made a, you know, this pr proposition to me. And so they went out on Jerry's front lawn and had a fist fight. And uh, nobody, nobody hurt their hands, but uh, Ed got pushed into the dirt. And, uh, and so I said, I'm not going home with either one of you. You know, we were all <laughs> living in, we were living in, say, in Ed Hardy's house with his wife and his kid. And uh, it was already uncomfortable, but, um, I said, I'm not going home back to San Diego with either of you guys. I'd been a surfer for a long time and I knew San Diego really well. And I didn't like this town. I said, no, I'm in New York City. I want to stay in New York City. We have a great little tattoo studio called Catfish Tattoo Studio in New York. And I'm going to go back and I'm going to, you know, work there. Um, so I'm not going back with either one of you. And so the next day I drove them both back to the airport so that they could leave. And uh, Ed, all the way to the airport, was talking to me in the rearview mirror, still begging me, overtly begging me to leave Michael and to run away with him to Japan. <laughs> and Michael was in the car as well? 
Yeah, he was in the back seat holding my hand in a death grip. And I have all these I have all these letters from Ed Hardy and I want to publish them because you know Ed likes to say I I don't exist, you know, because I threatened them so much they tried to eliminate me from tattooing. And it's been really a hard job for me to make my way into tattooing with these two men against me. But it's okay. I've done a good job. That's such so, a shame. Sorry. It's such a shame. It sounds like it's not. It's a story that we hear all the time, where there's a you know established group of men, then threatened by a woman, and then the men group together to try and erase the woman. And it's not just yeah. It's lo lots of things. no. It's it's a I don't know what you call it. It's a systemic in yeah. the culture. Um, there's a tattoo artist in uh, the East Coast of New England. His name is Ronnie. I can't remember his, how to pronounce his last name, but he confessed to uh, Tattoo Terry, who worked with, um, who watched over Philadelphia Eddie for a long time while Eddie was in his decline. He confessed to me that um, that Ronnie had told him that when I came out, that the men were terrified because i tattooed like a guy i i was not girly i wasn't like you know i uh i knew what i was doing i love tools my stepfather taught me everything about tools so i grew up having those um you know the hand um knowledge of tools and um i wasn't terrified i was easy to you know get a tattoo from and uh, I wasn't terrifying and uh, and the men, but the men were frightened of me. They were just literally frightened of me. And so they tried to, uh, especially Malone, because he had a lot to lose. He, you know, built, we built that business together and we started out together and um, he, uh, he was very threatened by me. What was, so, um, what was, New York like day to day at that sort of time not necessarily just as a female but like I imagine so I love Mad Men that show yeah. <laughs> so yeah. good. and I remember reading that because you've been a creative did you work in a an advertising agency I did I worked at a really great advertising agency on the top of uh, Fifth Avenue um uh, Muller Jordan and Herrick we handled Avon and head skis and head liquors and you know it was a and I was the graphic designer and the and the photographer uh, I mean the typographer the typographer mm -hmm. and uh, I worked with audiovisual too though and that was right across the street from the Museum of American Folk Art and the Museum of Modern Art so um, I was always hanging out with those guys too but Mad Men I've watched it and um in many ways, it's uh, it's very true. But the women in Mad Men were much tougher than the women in the agency. The women in the agency um, didn't um, didn't exercise so much uh, strength. In you know, they did what they had to do to keep their jobs. Yeah. You know, they were they they the agency was very slow. They didn't. I I was taught uh, typography by the United States government running a, the Defense Department during the, the Vietnam War. And when I go to work, I never knew how many pages I had to type that night. So I would stay until they were all done. And 
I was paid well for that. But um, yeah, the we just put our head down and worked. You know, there was a lot of flirtation. There was a lot of every man, of course, tried to get in every woman's pants. But you know, there was just not that. It was prior to um, women's liberation too, and mm -hmm. so you know, um, Madman is not a completely accurate. Um, overview of my time at that agency, but I can see how it would, you know, fit that storyline yeah. too. Yeah. So my my mum is um, a similar age to you. She so she was born in forty six, and she grew up in London. And she was a model in the sixties, and also did like admin jobs, and she worked in a bank. And she, I mean, that's like prime era, the same as Mad Men. The attitudes towards women and there she she must have just come up against the same sort of challenges I guess you know just that attitude towards women just think nothing of just slap slapping a bum as someone goes past oh. and things like that they just never get away with it today no everybody in the agency had a couch in their office you know I mean <laughs> you just didn't want to go into that office didn't want to go into that office and have the door closed um <laughs> But women were, have always been treated uh, like sexual conquests, you know, unless they're very homely or unless, uh, you know, they're just repugnant in some sort of way there. You know, they were always being hustled, always being. Um, it was a very sexual time, too, because uh, the pill came out and uh, then women's liberation started. And, uh, yeah, so I've had to walk that line my whole life my whole life you know in I, I, sorry hmm? go ahead no, please I was I was just going to say in terms of females getting tattooed did you tattoo many women um I tattooed a lot of girlfriends of bikers bikers would bring their girlfriends in and they didn't want a man to tattoo them because men in tattoo shops had a very bad reputation as being predatorial so uh, and that still goes on. I mean, it's it's much better now, but uh, I think uh, people are finding their place. But yeah, they would come, they would bring their girlfriends or their wives in and they, they'd say, I don't want some guy, you know, messing around with her. So they trusted me, you know, they trusted me. So I got a lot of work, excuse me, from uh, women who were in relationships with other men. Um, women didn't come in to get their tattoos, not for a long time. They didn't come in voluntarily. You know, they, uh, it was mostly men, but that's who I worked on. I remember I listened to, I don't know if I read an interview where you said that the designs women had were limited. There were certain things that male tattooists would tattoo on women. Oh, yeah. I want to speak about that for a minute. Um, I went into with Mike, Michael and I went to um, Cliff Ravens to uh, get our first real legitimate tattoos. Um, and so Michael wanted a demon on his shoulder. So Cliff had already drawn it up. So it was ready. And he was sitting down getting the tattoo. And then I was looking around at all the designs on the walls. And I saw a little clipper ship about, you know, just tiny little clipper ship which represents to me my love of freedom, my love of adventure, my 
independent spirit. And, uh, you know, one, one goal that I had in my life was to go to every village in the planet and, you know, see their rituals and their holidays and stuff, you know, so I, I, I traveled a lot. Um, <clears throat> and I wanted this little clipper ship on the top of my thigh. And Cliff said, Oh, no, you can't get that. And I said, what do you mean I can't get that? And he said, that's man's design. Only men can get clipper ships. You can get a rabbit, a squirrel, or a skunk named Stinky. <laughs> I'm not getting a yard varmint on my body. I want something <laughs> that symbolizes, you know, my strength and my love of adventure. And so um, women, though, did traditionally get... Uh, I have pictures of women showing off their butts and they have a little skunk over here and a little rabbit over here. Um, so you could get flowers or a butterfly if you were a woman. And so I finally decided to get cherry blossoms. So I got cherry blossoms from Cliff Raven here. And um, when I tell this story, a lot of women want the skunk. You know, they, they, do, they, they say, oh, I want a stinky. And I'm like, okay, sit down. Let's do a stinky on you because times have changed. But that's, you know, that that's what happened. And I was, you know, involved in tattooing. I had done a show at the Museum of American Folk Art. I was hanging out with Sailor Jerry and Huck Spalding. I wasn't just a girl, you know. So I did this piece of flash. This is from 1971. And they're stinky. Oh, <laughs> And he's pissed off. And so there are all these like mean images up here because. Oh, that bad. Oh, I want that so much. <laughs> if anyone listening, there's a skull and crossbones, snake, scorpion, wolf howling at the moon and the devil. And yeah. it's all in a, a little think bubble from a little skunk. That's great. Yeah, so that's uh, that's a little stinky that I do. So yeah, I was I was turned down to you know it just didn't make any sense to me that you know they were gender isolating tattoos. I mean, and you couldn't show anything. You couldn't show anything. Women got tattooed underneath where their swimming suit would be, so that uh, it, they were completely private. I mean, the whole world has gone upside down as far as this is concerned. Cindy Ray is a good friend of mine from Australia. You know, she was tattooed for exhibits and she um, she has all her tattoos that are can be seen on her body parts. Nothing in the private part. But other women, especially like the, Brittle, the, the British uh, Bristol Tattoo Club, the women in that group, they all have these tattoos all over their breasts, all over their butts you know, wherever they can get them, but never some somewhere where they can be seen. So yeah, it's completely different now, you know? Yeah. So different. The amount of, I mean, you must find the amount of people who come in wanting their first tattoo to be somewhere so visible, their hands or their neck or right on their face. chest or face. Everybody's yeah, coming face. in with tattoos now, you know, and I won't do them. I won't do them. And in fact, in my shop in New York City, I fired people who did facial tattoos wow. because, you know, that's going to ruin their lives. You know, you're going to send this kid home for Thanksgiving dinner at his grandmother's with it looks like licorice is drooling out of his mouth, you know. And a lot of the facial tattoos that guys are getting are female tattoos from New Zealand 
or Australia, you know, yeah. they're not, they're not meant for the men. So it's, yeah. people need to know what they're, you know, wanting. I would never touch a face, never. Yeah, I think I've done, I think I've done one or two in nearly seven years. And they've yeah. both been on people who are really tattooed. Right. And that I'm completely comfortable in tattooing them because I know that it's not going to impact their life. But right. I've, I've turned down so many neck yeah. and hands and face tattoos because I feel the moral obligation there. But so many people do not. They don't have that, yeah. that sense of right and wrong. Well, a lot of people just do it for money. I'll say, yeah. well, if I don't do it, he's going to go down the street and he's going to get it from somebody else. But I believe yeah. that you carry your karma. I believe that, you know, what you do is inside of you and you carry that with you to the next world. I don't want to be responsible for that. You know, yeah. I know That's people it. who have been heavily tattooed on their faces, very heavily tattooed. I know a bunch of them and they are isolated. Once they get that done, they, they withdraw from society. They can't interface with other people. They can't uh, carry on a normal conversation. They get, you know, they get isolated and they live alone and nobody should live alone. Yeah. You know, we're meant to be with other people. And so that's why I, that's normally why I would refuse it. Yeah. Yeah. And just quickly going back to that flash, did you mention, have you mentioned previously that you're doing something with your old flash? Are you putting it together for a book or are you um, reproducing it? Well, my husband did this, which is really great. He, uh, okay, I'm showing, I showed you that piece from 71, right? Very yeah. basic, old school, um, you know, thick lines, not a lot of details. So then I was embraced, even though Hardy made those moves on me, Hardy kept coming <laughs> around. Hardy kept coming around. And so I, he has been my, my major teacher in tattooing. He's been a very good friend to me. I, uh, a little still um, concerned about the affection that he has for me because it hasn't gone away. <laughs> so um, anyway, but he's, he's taught me a lot about drawing. He's taught me a lot about the history. He's taught me a lot. So in 78, I started making a flash when I went to deal. And I did the same kind of flash that... Um, you know, that I did on the stinky, they're kind of cartoons, you know, they're just little fast little cartoons. But then I was lucky enough to get, um, because of party, placed in Tattoo Land in East LA with Jack Rudy, Freddie Negrete, Good Time Charlie, and, uh, and me. And so it changed my style dramatically. Yeah. Wow, so we've gone from really colourful, cartoony to black and grey, Chicano-influenced, yeah. lovely sort of girl faces. Wow. Well, this, this was uh, in 80, so that's... That, uh... So for anyone listening, we're, we're looking at Flash here. <laughs> and just, um, yeah, as though a flashy just made up of like five five girls black and gray detailed and just yeah so lovely we'll have to put pictures up when we when we um yeah. put this episode out so that people can see because they're 
gorgeous so what are you doing with these oh flowers lovely yeah this is uh, 79 i think we're selling them as a set um that's we're gonna do wow uh, are they for sale now or is it something that you're still working on no they're for sale now and how can people buy them how can i buy them please you can get You can get in touch with me on my website or not my website. My website is non-functional right now because of the cold and because I had both knees reconstructed uh, during this pandemic. I thought, well, this would be a good time because I couldn't even walk. I had injured my knees so badly over time uh, and adventures that um, I thought, well, this will be a good time to take a year off to get both of these reconstructed. Nobody will miss me because everybody's going to be locked down. And so I did. I went to the hospital and I had both knees replaced. And um, and so I kind of let everything fall apart because the anesthesia they gave me kind of messed up my head a little bit. And so um, I couldn't even sign my name at one point. Um, and so I haven't really I didn't go back and rebuild my uh, my uh, website and besides that I lost my I lost my shop the landlord yeah the landlord came and said we want this building back because you've done such a good job and we need it for our use and you can't argue with that you know so I lost my beautiful little shop we opened oh, no. another shop, and so um, my husband is running that shop, and it's called Holy Work Tattoos in uh, Austin, Texas. And um, if I start tattooing again, because I'm not sure that I'm going to do that, um, the best way to get in touch with me is in my email. I have Instagram. I have Facebook. I have um about five other places where you can contact me. So um, if you're interested, we're going to post these on my website. It's going to be coming up really soon. And we'll sell them individually or as a set. I think we should sell Sign them. me up. I want all of them, please. And, okay. <laughs> and I hope that you so. managed to get... Um, I hope that you consider doing some tattooing because I was actually supposed to come to Austin in April of last year so Uh like two weeks after we went into full lockdown in the UK and the travel ban so as soon as we are allowed to come back and travel to the states I've got to reschedule the trip my boyfriend and I who's another tattooist we're going to come out so it would be amazing to come and see the shop and hopefully if you're up to it then I'd love to get a tattoo from you I'm Um, working towards it I'm working towards it. I, you know, it's the primary way I made money and uh, telling all my stories in a book is a laborious effort. It's going to take a long time. So uh, we need to make money. So I'm going to go back to work. We spoke to last week, we spoke to um, a lady called Pamela Debar and she's an author and she was a groupie in LA in the sixties and seventies. And so, oh, everyone knows Pamela. She's incredible. She has so many stories. But she, one of the books she wrote was how to write a a memoir. Um, 
and so she does all these like writing workshops and um just talks a lot about how to put it together and it made me think like god that must be so difficult like she was aided by these diaries she kept but not to have that written down it must be so hard to compile your thoughts and put them onto paper and memories well I was just stream of consciousness last night just you know putting it all down but you, you forget things like I forgot to talk about my stepfather teaching me about tools, you know, which is an integral part of how I came into mm. this industry and stayed. Um, so you have to make notes. I have boxes and boxes of diaries and journals, and I've never thrown anything away. And so I'm drowning in um, memorabilia. But, you know, I, I have at least managed to file the letters that I have Hold on, I'm gonna go get something. I'm gonna show you something. Here's here's sort of what I've compiled. These are the these are the letters from Ed Hardy, who wow. likes to say that I didn't exist. <laughs> I'm gonna and, I'm gonna message him and say. I've got proof. And if you don't come and do our podcast, then I'm releasing this. <laughs> well, it's just all these, you know, here he's showing me how to draw leaves. I don't know if you can see that. Just about. But wow. He's, he was a great help to me. Oh, stop it. So anyway, I have all, <laughs> all of these letters and I have them from uh, Zeke. Oh my God. I have so many letters from Zeke. He wow. would write so I don't know if you can see those. Oh my goodness. That's incredible. Yeah. And I have, that's Ed's binder. And I have Zach Rudy's binder. I have um, Sailor Jerry's binder, of course. Sailor Jerry stopped writing Ed Hardy and started writing to me. And I have uh, <laughs> Tom DeVita's stuff. And, uh, and then I have Paul Rogers' stuff. So here's Paul. Paul's are really hard to read, but wow. Um, oh wow, that's scruffy. So I have a bunch of them. And so these I want to put these in a book too, but then someone told me that whoever wrote the letter to me, if I print anything, that letter goes back to them. Oh. I can't do that. Yeah. I'm not can't sure how that. it works if you have to just get permission from them or I never get permission from Hardy, so that's one thing that feels so sad that we've lost is that art of writing letters yeah though you've just letters have just been the basis for so many books and and documenting history and we don't do that now everything's digital immediate everything's just right there google and you know instagram and you know all of that and it's it's beyond me I don't really do well with those social media platforms I can't remember where I got the letter did I get it on Facebook did I get it on Instagram (laughs) and each one of those has like three or four different ways to get letters you know and I'm like oh (laughs) anyway that's my cross bear can we talk a bit about working at Tattoo Land? How did that come about? Um, well, Good Time Charlie had a tattoo shop there 
um, that was called Good Time Charlie's and he had a crew and uh, he had a, a, a woman working there named Lady Blue. And Ed, uh, okay, Charlie, who's a wonderful man. I love Charlie. We're speaking uh, to Charlie in a few weeks, hopefully. Are you? Okay. Yeah. He just, he had a um, epiphany in the parking lot of Tattoo Land. He had built this incredible tattoo shop and people were, I mean, it was, you had to, when you walked into Tattoo Land, there were jail bars from floor to ceiling that encompassed the work area to wow. keep us safe from all of the clients because the <laughs> clients, you know, were hardcore Hispanic gang members and they took a lot of drugs. So we would scurry into work, lock ourselves into that cage. And then we would talk to people through the bars and uh, it was a very dangerous shop. And, um, and so Charlie didn't want to work. He didn't, he didn't want to own a tattoo shop anymore. He had sort of a religious conversion or something. And so he called Ed and Ed said, well, I don't want that shop to close. Yeah, I'll, uh, you know, I, I'll pay you for it. I'll buy that shop from you. So he did. He paid Charlie some money. And then uh, one of the ex-employees of Charlie, Lady Blue, went to another tattoo artist, Captain Jim, and told him that Charlie had sold the business to Ed. Well, there's a lot of, you know, um, what, what would you call it? There's a lot of... Uh, Politics? Yeah, a lot of politics. And so Captain Jim said, well, I'm going to buy the building. So he bought the building that the shop was in and <laughs> then gave, gave us our, uh, our walking papers, evicted us. Wow. And so Ed paid Charlie for the name and the, the belongings in uh, the building, but it, we had to go. So Ed found a little building down the road that was like a little tiny, tiny uh, office building and we converted that. Um, I was there when we uh, changed it over with my stepfather's tools, educating me to how to put <laughs> drywall and mud and all of that sort of stuff. So anyway, um, we opened that shop and it was just as busy as, um, as the previous location. But we would be in these cages and people when the shop opened up, would flood in. And then I don't speak Spanish. So, you know, people are shoving their arms through the <laughs> bars, you know, rattling off to me in Spanish what they wanted. And uh, it was, uh, it was really hectic, very, very hectic. Um, there's a good story about that, though, because um, when we moved to the little building, I worked the day shift all by myself. And then I would stay and yeah, I would stay and work with Freddie and Jack at night so I could learn because this this style that I was learning of thin little lines, you know, the uh, black and and gray. yeah, the black and gray is very different than the Sailor Jerry style, which is a thick line and solid fields of color. So I didn't have a clue how to do this, but I 
by watching Jack and Freddie, I picked it up pretty quickly. And uh, when I was in the in the shop one day alone, uh, these three guys came in, two big guys, two big Hispanics, and uh, a little guy with a little hairnet right here, the little spider web right there. And so um, <clears throat> they picked me, the big guys picked me up and put me up against the wall. And the little guy got in my face and he said, uh, listen, if you're going to come down here and catch my people, you better be down because if you're not down, we're going to take your thumbs. And we have so oh many God. people. So we have so many people. I've had my thumbs threatened so many times. Um, these, uh, you know, these people um, come into our town and they screw up our people. And, you know, uh, we don't need any more people like that and I said no 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 I'll do a good job I promise I love this work and I'm you know I'll do everything I can to, to be a good tattoo artist so he said okay we'll be watching you and he put me down and then um, about four months later uh, a man and it was really hard to be a woman in that shop because I wasn't trusted at all first of all I'm white second of all um, I didn't sound like anybody that I didn't speak Spanish, you know, so they didn't know what I was, but uh, this guy came in to get a tattoo and it was my turn. And by that time I had learned a little bit. And so Jack said, well, Kate can do it. And the guy said, no, I don't want her to do it. She's not strong enough to tattoo. And I'm like, strong, <laughs> not strong enough to hold a little buzzing machine. Are you kidding me? <laughs> but, um, you know, there's a lot of power that comes into tattooing, too, for some of these people. So, you know, it's uh, I can I can now understand what he meant. But uh, from the, the the room was crowded with all these other people wanting to get tattoos. And I hear this voice from the couch in the waiting room and it says, no, man, no, she's down. You can get a tattoo from her. She's down. And it was a little guy with a little hairnet that had threatened me about oh my six God. So I got his vote of approval. And that was, <laughs> that was really, that was really important to me. Um, I earned it, but um, yeah. Wow. It was tough. And I, and I loved working there, but it was very frightening. And so I was always dreaming about, you know, escape routes out of this shop because I mean, the third night I was there, I watched a guy get his throat slashed seven times with straight razors and bleed out on our front step. You know, uh, it was it was a brutal shot, brutal. But um, I I made it through and I, you know, prevailed and I have some more stories about it. But um, <laughs> I earned I earned a lot of respect from Jack. Yeah, Jack. Jack remains one of my very best friends. Oh, that's so nice. He just in this sort of job, I guess, especially when you work in such tense circumstances as that, you really must bond with people that you've experienced that with, and obviously yeah. lifelong. You're in the trenches. It's like you're the war buddy. You know, <laughs> you're covering each other's back. Yeah, yeah. it's and. It was it um was it on Tattoo Nation that you were talking about like the gang tattoos and yeah. the impact it could have on people's lives and and working to cover those up? Yeah, yeah, that was that little boy that came in. Well, I did it several times, but that that was a really uh, interesting episode where this 
young man who was 14 years old had gang member, uh, gang initials, you know, that he and his brother, 16 year old brother had carved on themselves. And then, you know, because they wanted to be gang members. That's what was, you know, the, the height of their goal setting, I think, in these uh, gangs. I mean, in gangs, you get lots of respect and, you know, but they're murderous too. And so he came in, he, sp he didn't speak um, English, he spoke Spanish and I didn't speak Spanish. And I told him I, I you know, I wasn't gonna cover his hand um, because he's uh, 14 years old. He was 14 years old. And um, so he left and he came back with his sister and his mother. And the mother was typical Hispanic woman, really short and round. And uh, she was crying and she said, please save my, my son's life. He's the only one I have left. That uh, the two of them were walking down the street and an opposing gang drove by and just shot um, because of these gangs, these symbols on their hands. Mm -hmm. And uh, they killed her, her 16 year old son. And oh so God. I said, uh, yes, I'll, I'll do that. I'll do it then. So I put yeah. roses yeah God. and you know potentially saved his life yeah i did yeah i did yeah yeah because yeah. he would be picked off by those same people or other people from these gangs i mean there was just life and death was very very uh easy in those in those in that town in that place you yeah. know the women were just as uh tough as the guys too <laughs> <laughs> wow um so move moving on to happier topics um i've seen a couple of books that you've put together that are sailor jerry um stencils uh-huh do you still sell his stencils do you sell the individual acetate ones or is it like a a flash sheet no i don't sell any of his flash um do i sell his flash i don't think so um I had 50 sheets of his flash at one time and uh, Ed Hardy uh, did his number on me. And uh, unfortunately um, he bought it all for $2,000. Wow. I had a head injury. And so I didn't know what I was doing I was oh my on my own and I was, I was struggling. So I let that all go, but I did have it for a while. But I, I did have all of his stencils, and I thought the stencils were valuable. I, I saw value in these stencils because they're all signed. And uh, Taylor Jerry pieces, you know, it's tattooing plastic. So I, um, I started selling them. And boy, if you think that <laughs> trying to tattoo at Tattoo Land was tough, try to sell old-time tattoo stencils to old timers who threw them all away because they would burn their house down you know because they're they're covered with grease and carbon and and a, in a heated basement or an, an attic you know they would self-combust and they hated them they hated them so they just threw them all away and i said no and i would i would ask a hundred dollars two hundred dollars for a stencil and um they accused me of being crazy they would you know come right up to me and say you're nuts we're not going to pay that kind of money for a stencil. We threw all of ours away. And I said, well, it was by Sailor Jerry and it's very important. You know, it's, it's one of it's hand carved. It's just like a tattoo, but in plastic and you can give it away to somebody else. You know, I had my little sales pitch. And so <laughs> I sold a lot of them 
I sold a lot of them. And uh, now I am known as the stencil queen. Lyle Tuttle called me that. He, you know, uh, christened me as the stencil queen and started the last collectible that people could get for tattooing. You know, people buy machines, they buy flash, they buy, you know, but nobody was selling stencils. So I, I was very proud that I was able to do that because, you know, I could wow. see the value in them. Yeah, and I, I still have a ton of them, and I love them, and you know they're my um, IRA pack, IRA pack rat. You know the IRA funds that you get. You know when you're going to retire, IRA <laughs> pack rat, because I've never thrown anything away. So wow, that's amazing. Yeah. They must have been so hard to use. Like, how did you actually use them as a stencil? Oh, they're terrible. They're terrible. It's one reason that nobody ever tattooed, you know, that, that stopped people from tattooing. If we went back to stencils, half of the bill, half of the business would just drop off because nobody <laughs> would want to use them. Uh, they're very unwieldy, first of all, because they're stiff. And so, and the body is not, the body has curves and dips and so forth. And so trying to get a good impression from a stencil pressing on it without smearing is really difficult but you shave the body then you smear vaseline on the body then you take ground carbon and you shake it onto the stencil and you rub it into the little grooves you know and that's why the older ones are so beautiful because they're so rich with that carbon patina and then you press it on the body and the vaseline that you've put on the body is going to supposedly adhere to some of that carbon and when you pull it off, some of that faint carbon outline will still remain. Uh, but it's very fragile. You can wipe it off by just, you know, touching Looking it. Looking at it. <laughs> yeah. I've, I was tattooing somebody in the Honolulu shop and it was very, uh, it was very hot and humid. So we had a fan on and I turned the fan on and the stencil just went right away. And oh, so wow. the old timers could tap, they could draw, they could draw on the skin with a toothpick dipped in, uh, in pig, in ink, black ink, and they just draw on the skin and then wow. they tap. And that wasn't any more per permanent than the, uh, than the, uh, stencil carbon. It was, you know, just as fragile, but yeah, you had to work from the bottom right up. You had to, you know, you had your little tissues, tissues right here. You just touch when you're, you know, tattooing. That's why your machines had to run perfectly because if they spit, you were sunk, you know? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And you said, um, you've mentioned to me previously that you've got the uh, molds for Sailor Jerry machines, his, his own, made, own made machines. Uh, well, his own line of machines. Yes, I have the mold for it. Do you want to go get the mold? I'll show you the mold. Wow. Uh, we're going to uh, we're going to build this again. Wow. Uh, I have Sailor Jerry machines that I can use to uh, copy the geometry and you know uh, make sure that um, we're on the right track. And then he sent me a lot of little. Um, diagrams and things of how to make the machine but I'm the only one who has a mold the mold that that these machines came from from Des Conley and uh, this is the mold 
is the most valuable thing I own. Wow. Oh my goodness. Wow. You can see the little molds for the frames. That's incredible. We're uh, getting a a, uh, 3D impression of that. So we don't have to use that. Mm -hmm. And then we're looking for the foundry. And we're working with some people who are pretty knowledgeable about tattoo machines. And this is going to be amazing. So these are are being made to to make tattoo machines. They're not being made for a piece of art to to collect. It's actually going to be a working machine. You can do whatever you want to with it once you pay me the money. (laughs) (laughs) They're going to be, they're going to be, um, they're going to be usable. Yes. They're going to be a functional, just like Jerry's machine. I have two of Jerry's machines that I can pattern these machines after, but um, they're, I mean, Mario Barth did my arm, right? He did my sleeve. And so he, he who's a good friend, he is a good friend of mine. So he came to uh, Philadelphia to do my sleeve. And then he, he knew that I had these machines, these, these uh, Sailor Jerry machines. And he asked if he could do these power lines um, with that <laughs> machine. And, I, and he was the representative then for uh, Mickey Sharps. And so he had a duffel bag full of Mickey Sharps machines. Plus he had his own machines. And uh, he said, he picked up the, the Jerry machine and he did a few of these power lines and then he just put it down and he said, I will give you every machine I have for one machine. <laughs> and I said, no, no, I've turned so many offers down for this, for this mold. Um, Adam Safari offered me money for the mold, but yeah, you, know, you, you keep if holding I, that. If I make machines, I can make, far more money one at a time by just people all over europe people all over south america you know to uh yeah the market just keeps building so that's what i'm gonna do that's it what do you think jerry would think about the brands that his name is turned into oh god well i just okay the way that started is this kid in philadelphia knew that i had all these stencils when i got to philly to work with bill funk my car was packed with flash and stencils and everything. And so he, you know, he was a bartender at a a bar called six silk city. And he, um, he was desperate to make more money than a bartender. And he was, he had a little t-shirt company that was, uh, that was floundering. He was reproducing pictures or drawings by Rick, Rick, Rick Petty, Richard Petty. Um, who did like pinup girls. And so he, um, he said, listen, Kate, I have this great idea. He said, why don't we build a corporation where you take your Sailor Jerry imagery and put them on t-shirts and clothes and, and uh, refrigerator magnets and so forth. And, and then we'll take you to the conventions and you'll be the center of the convention booth and you'll make so much money. And I said, well, you know, Larry, I'm not going to do that because Jerry thought his work was fine art. That's how I knew Jerry from the, the show that we did at the Museum of American Art. He wouldn't want his work trivialized and, you know, mass produced and, you know, be, you know, trinkets. That's not what he was after. He wanted to be recognized as a fine artist. 
And so I'm not going to do that. So he was, he wasn't satisfied with that. And he had some backers who had an advertising agency, Gyro Advertising, there in Philly. And so he, and he flew to San Francisco and hit up Ed Hardy, thinking Ed Hardy had all this stuff. Ed Hardy never had anything of Sailor Jerry's that he didn't, that wasn't given to him or that he didn't find somewhere. He was not part of Sailor Jerry's legacy. Sailor Jerry wrote letters to me after this fist fight on Jerry's front lawn saying how much he despised Ed Hardy for, wow. first of all, moving in on me for uh, sharing information that he, that, you know, that he gathered um, honorably, honorably from the old timers. And he said, he's just going to go and over to Japan and blab. And then he went to work for Japanese guy, which Jerry hated the Japanese because of Pearl Harbor. He liked Kazuo. You know, he, he hated women tattoo artists, but he liked me. You know, I mean, he, he had prejudices, but when he met a person of that group, he would embrace them if he found out that they had honor and were decent people. So um, he found out that he believed Ed didn't have honor. And so, um, yeah, he cut Ed Art off. He cut him off. He, wow. he wrote some very negative things about Hardy. And I have those letters. And I can print those letters because Jerry's not alive now. So those letters will remain with me. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, so it was Ed that then took the brand and, and turned it into Sailor Jerry Rahm and the imagery. Michael, yeah, Michael and Ed to get back at me. I mean, you see how stupid wow. this is? They wanted to put me in my place. And, Ed, and Michael was terrified of me because I... I, you know, made things happen. And he, he, uh, yeah, he, he didn't want me to take the spotlight away from him. And so he made all kinds of stories up about me, how I stole all this stuff and how I was, you know, and I, how can you steal a U-Haul truck full of things, you know, sneak them out in the middle of the night, you know, he was, he would just say the worst things about me. And he turned a lot of people against me. A lot of people yeah. believe, you know, it's like a lot of people love Trump, but, you know, they're kind of blinded by his personality. A lot of people love Malone because they love, they're blinded by what he did, you know, but at the same time, I paid a price for it, yeah. a very heavy price. And so um, I've been called crazy. I've been called a thief. I've been called everything that you can think of, but I'm none of those things. I'm none of those things. And so, uh yeah, so uh, where was I off on this tangent? Um, so Jerry wouldn't have, he wouldn't have liked, do you think, that the Ed had come in and, and put his designs on a, a bottle of rum and so on? Well, what happened is this advertising agency put up the money to pay off Ed and uh, Michael to give them money to give them imagery and, and say that this this trademarking that they were going to do with Sailor Jerry's name and everything was legit. Well, um, Jerry's widow is Jerry's heir and his family is his heir. And I'm good friends with Jerry's widow. And so I decided to fight this in, in Louise Collins's name. And so I did. 
and I it took me about I don't know 10 years to find the right attorney I found the right attorney in Hawaii and he sued the rum company for every dime they made and the wow. family won they have I can't talk about it because it's all sealed in legal sure. documents, you know, but um, yeah, I, they wanted all the money that the rum company was making. They wanted the rum company to stop, but the family prevailed and um, they changed the course of this rum company or they sold, they sat, they signed off on it. I'm not sure they might've signed off on it, but I'm pretty sure they got a pretty big settlement from the rum company from the family mm -hmm. for the family and i'm very proud of that and we had a whole stuff we had a whole you know campaign going justice for jerry and it was all over the internet i've been fighting that for 20 years and uh i'm very proud that uh, the family was able to get a settlement from that rum company and the rum company you know knows that they don't have the right they didn't have the right to yeah. just steal everything that he had because I remember reading that none of the profits from it were going to his estate. And I was just flabbergasted. How was that even possible? Like who would have the audacity to have done that? But it's good that it's been resolved. Yeah. His, his widow is his heir and his two children. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. Yeah. So. At least they can benefit from it now, hopefully. I hope so. I hope, I hope that his widow, you know, she's elderly. I mean, she's in her mid eighties. She has a lot of health issues and I'm really, I, I, well, I know that they did get enough money that she's going to be very comfortable for the rest of her life. Wow. Good. Wow. Um, I have a, a question. How did the name Shanghai Kate come around? Oh God. Everybody asks me that. Uh, <laughs> well, I, you know, Back in the day, 50 years ago, if you wanted to rent a space, and even up until just fairly recently, I think, if you wanted to rent a space to be a tattoo artist, nobody would rent to you. They'd say, oh, they'd find out you were going to be a tattoo artist. They'd go, oh, no, 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 I'm sorry, we've already rented it or whatever, you know. And yeah. so uh, then the laws got passed that, you know, people could rent whatever they wanted if they had the money. And so slowly, um, Occidental people are letting shops open in their neighborhoods but now it's just everywhere but prior to that tattoo shops could only open in uh, uh, Chinatowns where there were Asian um, landlords because the Asians didn't care as long as you pay the rent on time that's all they wanted and so <laughs> I always worked in Chinatowns I always worked in I mean in New York it was a Chinatown and in San Francisco I worked in Chinatown and Los Angeles I worked in Chinatown Philadelphia I worked in Chinatown Honolulu <clears throat> Honolulu I worked in Chinatown <laughs> because they were the people who would rent you spaces excuse me those were the people who would rent spaces to you and so when I got to tattoo land I have this this uh knack of uh, soliciting help from people uh, without payment. I'm like, would you move that over there for me, please? You know, <laughs> so it's kind of like shanghaiing people to do stuff for me that nobody, you know, wanted to do. But I make it well they're worth their while anyway. But um, yeah, so Jack said, well, you're Shanghai Kate. You've always worked in China, Chinatowns and you can talk anybody into anything. So, <laughs> you're saying, okay. 
so I I accepted it. I, I accepted it in the mid nineties, and uh, I'm very I'm very happy with it. <laughs> good. It's always good when you get a nickname that you're happy with. Yeah, my nickname in school was Dick. So what? What is it? In school, my nickname was Dick. Dick. D i c k. Yeah. Why did they call you that? Well, there's a couple of theories, um, and I my friend asked me this fairly recently as school friends, and I said, "Oh well, I think it's because I just drew dicks on everything." Oh, well, <laughs> and she it. said, "Oh, that makes sense. I thought it was just because you're a bit of a dick." <laughs> oh, thank you. So yeah, so it could be either of those things, and I still get like Christmas cards to to Dick Richardson. Well, that's, you know, people love you if they send you a card that says that, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. If they didn't love you, don't get a card. Well, that's, that's true. Hard. That's true. <laughs> you know, when people use a, you know, uh, a uh, nickname for you, inflammatory or not, it's a sign that they love you. Yeah. Oh. It's a sign of affection. That's true. Even if it yeah. is dick. <laughs> well, you know, half the world has one, so it's not that. Bad. <laughs> that's not it's not that bad of a thing they're very useful i guess <laughs> not having one i don't know but i you know it seems like it gets in the way of a lot of stuff actually we have to ask nick on that one yeah i think you're right it definitely gets in the way yeah i suppose that depends on the size and hey, we're, we're going off on a tangent i was just gonna say i don't think nick has that problem thank you mate <laughs> You're, that's why people call you Dick. <laughs> there you go. There you go. And it's how we found out. <laughs> yeah. It's um, solved now. Yeah, there we go. Now that that riddle's solved, that, that mystery. Um, so we always ask Instagram if anybody has any questions for the people we're chatting to. And I think Mick has got one. Yes. So this Only is from one? the Rudy. Well, Tessler. no, the, this is the one we've chosen out of multiple oh. yes this, one, this, this one's from the rudy tattooer and they ask how do you think jerry would feel about the tattoo industry now he's rolling in his grave he's yeah. absolutely been cycle you know i mean <laughs> barry was somebody who really loved the history of tattooing the history is so rich and now it's just being diluted to the point that it it's losing all of its uh you know it's underpinning of how it's how it happened and who did it and, you know jerry and the fact that anybody is just picking up a tattoo machine and you know pick and poke and stabbing themselves with ugly little designs i'm sorry um <laughs> you know, he would he would uh, he would not he wanted it to be fine art he wanted it to be fine art and you can't have a country full of fine artists you know i'm sorry volley maybe but you know um what the way they're doing it they're just you know it's a it's a bastardization of the world's oldest art form and i that's how i see it and i know that's how jerry would see it yeah yeah i i can imagine that i mean you've to have been tattooing what what is it 50 years me is, yeah have you been tattooing is it 50 years am i doing right, yeah. correct maths you must 71. have just how could you possibly have imagined in 71 that it would be so mainstream, so commercial? 
it would just it surely it just would have blown your mind you couldn't possibly have been able to imagine oh you couldn't imagine i've had many many discussions with many old timers over the years at first it was uh, the supply companies you know they're like oh god you know they're selling stuff to everybody you know cam supply company you know how can we you know because when we when i started you there were no supply companies you had to make everything on your own everything we used yeah. pampers for uh bandages and yeah. uh you know i mean because they were absorbent i've never worked without sterilization i gotta say uh zeke owen was the one who brought sterilization into the industry and then he gave it to jerry and then jerry gave it to ed and then it filtered all the way down so um but jerry's um medical test for a tattoo license in hawaii is horrific i mean you have to have it you have to be a medical doctor in order to pass it you know he uh he didn't uh he didn't like the trivial tribalization he didn't like contemporary society very much either um he loved jap uh, chinese he loved the chinese but um yeah he uh he would not be thrilled with what's happened. I mean, it's not, it's not being respected. Yeah. And it's, it's so easy. And, you know, it, it takes years to be a good tattoo artist because you have, everything is changing too. The, the equipment is changing. The, you know, the power sources are changing. The machines are changing. The needle configurations are changing. Everything is changing. And so it's a full-time job to try and keep up with all that stuff. And, uh, and so um, I like the old school way. And I like, I, I do have these new machines and stuff. People I'm sponsored by some really fine companies, you know, but um, I don't know. There's, I'm just an old timer at heart. I'm just a school, old school person at heart, but um, yeah, it's, it's completely different. Every time I would talk to anybody, they'd say, oh, the magazines. Oh, God, the magazines are out now. You know, that's just going to open it up wider. And oh, conventions. Oh, my God, we're going to have conventions. You know, <laughs> everybody is, you know, very against all of those old timers are very against the new modernization of tattooing. They don't see it as a benefit. They see it as you know, they want to keep it just the way it was. They want to keep it harder to do. They want to keep, you know, they don't want people just coming in. You know, this, I met some kid in uh, Buffalo, New York, who was tattooing. I, I was, I could hear his machine and it was out of tune. And I said, you know, but he was doing beautiful work. And I said, you know, nice work, you know, but your machine is out of tune. He goes, oh, he goes, I said, do you know how to, do you know how to, uh, tune your machine he said oh no if it if it stops working i throw it away and i go get another one i said what machines are you using he said juan puente i said tell me where you're throwing these machines okay because <laughs> i want to go get them i mean perfectly fine 600 dollars tattoo machines just chucking them in the trash because they were out of tune wow didn't even know how to tune a machine you know that's crazy yeah people are, are but they're kind of flashing the pants, I think, these people. You know, they, it seems to be easy for them, so they pick it up and they they do it um, under the banner of easy. And then when it starts to get a little tough, a little, you know, difficult, then they, they uh, 
either throw it away or they they start something else again. They yeah. go do something else. They they can't they become you know a graffiti artist or something. I mean yeah yeah. I feel like we've just touched on like the tip of the iceberg of your history and your stories so I really hope that you manage to um, put your book together because I would just love to read the rest of your your tales well I you know it's going to be an encyclopedia if I tell all the stories you know it's <laughs> you know volumes going down the you know bookcase but I'm going to do the best job I can <laughs> and I I look forward to that Thank you so much. It's just been such an honor to speak to you. And I just appreciate you you coming on our little show so much. Loved it. I loved it. Thank you so much for asking me. Thank you. Oh, I'm so pleased. Oh, yeah, thank you time. again. Yeah, that was loads of fun. Thank, thank you. you so much. Hope okay. You. Cool. See you again. Take okay. care. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.